0: Life is a matter of choices. Every day you make almost an endless amount of choices. Do I eat this or that for breakfast? What do I wear? How do I spend my time in quarantine? Do I spend most of my day in the family room or the living room? Some choices, though, we know are very significant. What career should I pursue? Whom should I marry? Where should I live? Should I buy a house? or not. Do You see how our choices make such a big difference? And there's more. Our choices aren't just a matter of choosing between a set of alternatives, but actually our choices affect our character. Some choices can ensnare us, for example, into an addiction. You make a choice to smoke a cigarette, and then for years you might have to deal with that choice. Or you might make a choice that I'm going to start spending some free time volunteering, for example, in a retirement home, a nursing home, and that experience then changes how you see others and how you see yourself. Christian writer John Maxwell says, life is a matter of choices, and every choice you make, every choice you make makes you. Church, the power to choose comes from God. He gave us the ability to make choices, and God wants us to choose him. And in Scripture, we read read some really dramatic instances where God called his people to choose him. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses was speaking to the Israelites as they were on the cusp of entering the promised land for the first time after years of rebellion. And in verse 15, Moses says to the people, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. A few verses later, he says, Choose life that you and your offspring may live. Another example was after the Israelites did enter the promised land, they still waffled back and forth between serving God and between serving the false gods around them. And the leader of Israel then was a man named Joshua. And at the end of his life, he called the people to make a choice. He said in verses 24, or Joshua 24, verse 15, If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in, whom land, in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. Now of all choices to make, none is greater than the choice whether to choose Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. This choice not only affects your character, but also will affect your eternal destiny. In our passage this morning, Jesus lays out very clearly what it means to believe in him And what it means to not believe in Him. Perhaps more than any other passage, this choice and its consequences is made explicitly clear. The choice is yours. What will you do? Now as we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount, I invite you to turn to chapter 7. And as you're turning there, just a quick recap. The sermon began with an introduction in chapter 5 with the famous Beatitudes. And then Jesus changed gears in chapter 5, verse 17, and all the way through chapter 7, verse 12, we've been walking through the main part of the Sermon on the Mount, which deals with the character and the conduct of God's people. He wants us to be righteous in all that we say and do so that we are salt and light to the world. So now then, we come to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, and as we hear these words, I want you to see that Jesus isn't just kind of giving a recap or restatement of things that he has already said. Rather, he gives a very stirring call to action. He wants his listeners to respond, and he does so by giving a set, four sets of contrasts where we are to make a choice between the contrasts. We're going to cover two sets of these contrasts today, and then next week, Lord willing, cover the other two set of choices. So the first set of choices that Jesus lays out before us as he closes now the Sermon on the Mount is two ways, or two roads. Here Jesus describes the choice between following him and rejecting him and how it affects our eternal destiny. So he says in verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. So Jesus describes these two ways. For the first way, envision uh, an easy path that leads to a wide gate. A wide gate shows us that it's accessible to a large crowd. Many are going to go through the wide gate gate. As I said, this way is easy. The path is easy. What does Jesus mean when he talks about it being easy? Well, I think he's getting at the fact that there are no hindrances. Spiritually speaking, it's very comfortable. We live how we want to live. We are the boss. We are Lord. Now, that might mean that you live kind of an irreligious life where basically you live as your own boss and that you're seeking to make the most out of getting pleasure and minimizing pain and so forth. Kind of a hedonistic lifestyle. That's all that you're here just to kind of make the most out of this life and enjoy yourself. No divine demands or anything like that that might encumber you. So it might mean an irreligious life, but Jesus very well also could mean a religious life such as the scribes and the Pharisees who were very outwardly righteous in their conduct. But such a religious life does not deal with the heart as Jesus has often discussed in the Sermon on the Mount. Later in chapter 23 of Matthew, verse 28, Jesus takes specific aim at the scribes and the Pharisees, again, focusing on their hearts, not on the outward behavior. He says, so you also appear outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you... You are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So, Jesus is not after mere outward behavior, He is always after true heart righteousness. Sadly, this first way leads to destruction. What does that mean to say it's going to lead to destruction? Jesus means more than just physical destruction, everyone dies. He is speaking of spiritual destruction. He's speaking of judgment. He's speaking of hell, final, lasting, eternal punishment for those who have not received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Jesus warns of hell more than any other person in Scripture. Church, we cannot pick and choose which parts of Jesus that we like and which parts that we don't like. We can't say, well, I like his miracles, or I like his grace, or I like his wisdom, but I don't like his teaching about hell, so therefore I'm going to reject it. No, it's all one package. So instead of rejecting hell, we should try to consider why, God, why it is that God does this. We need to consider that God is infinitely righteous and just, and he can't allow sin to go unpunished without compromising that perfect righteousness and justice. And unfortunately, Jesus says that this path is chosen by what? Many, many. In other words, this is the typical path that people choose. As we saw, this gate is wide, right? It means that it accommodates the masses and the masses are going to go through this gate. The great majority of people do not choose Christ. They do, not ex- they do not stop and examine themselves. They don't ask themselves questions like, what is it that I truly believe, and why is it that I believe these things? Do my beliefs make sense of God and the world and myself, and does it give me a sense of peace and joy and hope? Has my life been transformed by God? Do I really know God personally? Most people, sadly enough, don't really stop and ask themselves these kind of questions. Remember Jesus' parable of the sower where he talks about how a man goes out and he takes a handful of seed and he throws it on the ground and the seed lands on four, four types of soil. The seed represents the gospel and the soil represents four different types of hearers. Sadly, only one type of soil actually receives the gospel. The other types reject the gospel for different reasons. So what that parable is getting at is that very few people actually do receive the gospel. I think of our nation where 70, 70% of this nation identifies as Christian. But there's no way that that could be possibly true. Because our nation would be so much different if it actually was 70% Christian. Many enter the wide gate that leads to destruction. Now in verse 14, Jesus speaks of a second way that stands in stark contrast to the first way. He says "Therefore, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So for this second way, envision a difficult path that leads to a narrow gate. The size of the gate is an indicator that not many people go through this gate unlike the wide gate. In addition to being narrow, the the way is hard, the path is hard. It's not easy. Spiritually speaking, there are many obstacles both externally and internally We've already seen a lot of the things so far that Jesus has pointed out in the Sermon on the Mount. For example, externally, Jesus pointed out how his disciples, his people, his followers will experience persecution. If you follow Christ, you will go through instances of persecution where people might mock or ridicule your faith. And in some cases, it gets even more intense, where perhaps you lose your job or you experience physical abuse. You get in prison. Some people, and in many cases around the world, even today, yes, people lose their lives because of their faith in Christ. So you face pressure on you on this narrow path externally. But we also know that internally, you face a lot of pressure as well to stay on this path. This path isn't easy. It isn't easy to follow Jesus' words. You have to be merciful. Not always easy, right? You have to be a peacemaker when it's a lot easier just to pick and choose sides, isn't it? You have to not hate people in your heart or lust after them. You have to love your enemies. You must avoid hypocrisy. Jesus assumes that you will give, you will fast, you will pray. You should not be anxious about money and possessions, but instead trust God in all circumstances. Yes, even in the midst of a pandemic virus, we are not to be anxious. We should judge others fairly not by the, and, and use the standard that we live by ourselves not use a different standard, as we saw last week. It is not easy to follow Jesus, is it? The famous writer G.K. Chesterton said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. It's not easy to follow Jesus, and if you think it is, the Jesus you may be following may not be the real Jesus, but might be a Jesus that you have made up in your own mind. Very soberly, Jesus says that few people actually find this way. It takes effort and commitment to find the gate. It is narrow. It's easy to overlook because it is small and the path is difficult. It's really amazing that Jesus says these words. Think about it. When he says these words, he is very popular at this time. The crowds were flocking to see him. They wanted to experience a miracle or or they wanted to hear his powerful teaching. And surely Jesus, shouldn't he have thought that most if not all of these people that they truly wanted to follow him? Jesus knew the human heart though. And he knew that people are more interested And hearing a good sermon or experiencing a miracle than actually following him. But for those who do find this way, this way leads to what? Leads to life. What does he mean by saying that it leads to life? Well, again, he's not talking about physical life because people are alive on both paths, both ways. He's speaking of something more. He's speaking of eternal life, which means that you know God in a personal way, a real vital relationship with God, both now and for the rest of eternity. In John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus said in his prayer to God the Father, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life means that you know God, not just that you know that he exists, but that you know him in a relationship that came through believing the message of Christ, the gospel, that we should repent of our sins, turn from our sins, and place our faith and trust in Christ. John 3.16 very succinctly but powerfully puts it all together when it famously says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So the gate is narrow and the path is difficult, but the destination is glorious and it is certain. And I would also add that this life, this eternal life, that it only comes through Jesus. He alone is the one that it comes through because he alone is God in human flesh. He alone is the one who lived a sinless life. He alone was the one who died on the cross for our sins. He alone was the one who rose from the dead. He alone is Lord and Savior. And Jesus himself says that he is the way. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus' words are powerful, aren't they? And the early church clung to those words and, the, and did not shrink back from declaring that this way is only through Jesus. Did you know that the early church, that was one of the names that they were called, they were actually called the way because they were following the way of Jesus. And Peter declared to the religious leaders in a very bold and dramatic fashion in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Wow. Jesus' description of these two ways is so vivid and so compelling. And a great illustration of how this played out in his life, I think, is found in John chapter 6. If you remember this passage, Jesus had just miraculously fed, uh, through multiplying the bread and the fish, approximately twenty to 25,000 people. He was at the height of his popularity, Some in the crowd there wanted to make him king of Israel, no doubt to lead a rebellion and to get rid of the Romans. So he was incredibly popular at this time. So what does Jesus do in response? Well, actually, he gives some very challenging teaching about who he is and what it means to follow him. And when the crowds heard this, it says in verse 66 of John 6, After this, many of his disciples turned back, and no one walked with him. In other words, many in the crowd saw that following Jesus would not be easy, and so they rejected him. They chose the wide gate, the path that leads to destruction. And then in verse 67, Jesus asked the 12 disciples, Do you want to go away as well? How would the disciples turn or respond after seeing these crowds leave in big numbers? When verse 68 and following, Peter says these wonderful words. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The disciples committed to following Jesus. Why? Because he and he alone was the one who had eternal life. So we've seen here how Jesus gives this first contrast, these two ways, these two paths. Only one of them leads to life. As he continues to draw the Sermon on the Mount to a close and to call his, le- his readers and his listeners to a response, he comes now to the second set of choices. And he talks about two different trees. He describes the choice between true and false prophets, those who would lead people to Christ and those people who would lead away from Christ. He says in verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So Jesus gives a warning to look out for those who are genuine or not. And he warns about those who do look like outwardly they are Christians. They're Christian leaders, they're Christian teachers, and so forth. They look like a sheep, a Christian on the outside, but inside they're ravenous wolves. Wolves don't just sit around and play board games, do they, with sheep. They devour them. And so Jesus is warning about false prophets who do the same. And they do it, how? Through deception. They, do, they don't come to you with red flags and warning signals. They come secretly, deceptively, and if you're not careful, you will follow them instead of Jesus. In church, Scripture gives a ton of warnings about false teachers, and I know that theme of false teachers isn't something that will win a popularity contest in our culture, where a lot of times we're We're more guided by what makes us feel good than what is actually the truth. But Scripture makes much of this theme, and we should take it very seriously. Perhaps the best example about the the really destructive effects of false teaching occurs in Acts chapter 20. Remember this, when Paul gathered the, the leaders there from the church of Ephesus and gives them this farewell, goodbye, and warning. And he says in verse 19 and 20, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So, Paul again, we see how he used that imagery of wolves and sheep. And Paul was giving this warning to these Ephesian leaders, people that he had spent with time with about three years, the longest stay that he had ever had. And he gives this very heartfelt. And passionately, look, watch out for false teachers. They're going to come and to destroy your church. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. If you read the letters of First and 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to his apprentice Timothy, who then later took Paul's spot there in Ephesus and talks about, discusses how these churches were in turmoil because of false teachers who had brought in Poor doctrine, as well as the, as the lives they were leading, how it was bringing destructive effects. Paul wasn't alone. Other apostles made similar warnings. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1-2 to two says, "...there were also many false prophets among the people of Israel, just as there will be false prophets among you. They will secretly induce, introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves." Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. So false prophets are so prevalent and destructive. So you might say, well, how do we pick up on them? How do we detect them? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 16 to 18. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes our figs from thistles? So every tree, healthy tree, bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So Jesus says a thorn bush cannot produce grapes, right? It produces thorns. I've spent a lot of time, probably too much time, in thorn bushes around my house as I've been cutting trees the last few years. And I've come to realize that thorns can really rip you up, even if you're wearing Thick, protective clothes. Thorns can do a number on you. Grapes, on the other hand, are probably one of my favorite fruits of all. So I have learned that thorns and grapes are much different. Grapes do not come from thorns. And also thistles do not come from figs. Fig trees produce figs. Trees produce fruit according to their kind. And also what Jesus is getting at here is that a healthy tree, whatever it is, a fig tree, an apple tree, it will produce good fruit. Likewise, a diseased tree will produce bad fruit. And it can't go the other way. A good tree will not produce bad fruit and a bad tree will not produce good fruit. If it does, something is wrong with the tree. If the tree looks healthy but it's producing bad fruit, you know that inwardly something is wrong with that tree tree right the very definition of a healthy tree means that it produces good fruit not bad fruit so what is Jesus getting at here with this illustration of the trees and the fruits what kind of fruit is he talking about I think he's referring to the fruit is that your if you are a prophet or a teacher or a leader that your life will conform to what Jesus has taught here your life will affirm who jesus is and your life will give indication that you're trying to live out what he said that is a good tree a bad tree is one who will deny in subtle ways who jesus is and their life will not measure up to what we've seen here in the sermon on the mount we a false teacher might say they are a follower of christ but inevitably you will see the fruit somehow whether their words or their lives they won't measure up. In verse 19 and 20, Jesus describes the destiny of the false, excuse me, the bad tree. He says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So the tree that does not bear fruit will eventually be cut down and thrown into the fire. I think Jesus probably had a deeper meaning in mind when he spoke of the, Imagery of fire. Because he uses this in many places to describe judgment that awaits. And given the context here about the two ways and the certainty of final judgment, Jesus is surely referring to hell. So would you agree that false teachers are a major concern? Jesus warned so strongly because he knew that Satan would stir people to wreak havoc in the church. He knew that false teachers would distort the message of salvation so that people would see the wrong Jesus. He knew that false teachers would contradict the genuine gospel so that a watching world would be confused as to the actual truth. He knew that false teachers would engage in sinful activities that would hurt the confidence of fellow Christians and would also caused outsiders to lose interest. He knew that false teachers would play a major role in drawing people in to the broad path and the wide gate that leads to destruction. Later he says in Matthew chapter 24 verse 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Jesus' prediction has certainly come true down to the present day. You know, though these false prophets lead people astray, people are still accountable whether they follow them or not. No one can use an excuse, well, I was led astray by a false teacher. At the end of the day, each of us has a choice to make. Jesus demands a choice. We cannot simply say that we don't want to make a choice. Jesus is calling for a decisive response. God has given you this opportunity today to respond to the Word of God. In C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, he writes about the return of Christ this way. He says, quote, that will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen whether we have realized it before or not. Now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. So with all of my heart, I urge you to choose following Jesus today. So what does that mean? again, it means you turn from your, your sins. You acknowledge that you have sinned before God, the wrongfulness of those sins. You confess that to God and that you believe Jesus is God in human flesh who died on the cross to pay for those sins and who rose from the dead to show that he was victorious over death and that he was victorious over sin and that he gives eternal life to everyone who believes in him. 1 John 2.25 declares this wonderful promise. This is the promise that He has made, eternal life. Let us choose life today. Let us pray. Lord God in heaven, we pray that You would use Your powerful Word to open hearts and minds and stir someone here today who has never believed in Christ, that today would be the day of life, that they would enter the path that leads to life and follow you for the rest of their days. May today be the day of salvation. And Lord, we know the great value of your word, and it makes such a stress, such an emphasis upon avoiding false teaching false teachers, false prophets who lead astray. Help us to be faithful, to maintain the truth, to uphold the truth, and recognize the good trees and the bad trees. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for the time that we get to just gather around and hear the word of God, whether it's in person or through technology We know that your word does not return void. So we ask you to do a mighty and powerful work today. We ask this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Amen.